We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. is going on in Nicaragua. Many left-leaning Americans have cheered on the popular Sandinistas since they came to power and overthrew a fascist dictator in uh, the summer of 1979. Many Americans have traveled to Nicaragua to help and support the revolution. But since the spring of 2018, there have been relentless reports of violence Over 200 people have reportedly been killed in the street clashes. Has the long popular government transformed into an enemy of the people? We all remember the Soviet Union. It was supposedly a dictatorship of the workers, and the post-war ruler called himself a communist, but Joseph Stalin became another in a long line of murderous fascist dictators. A great revolution brewing since the 1920s against the ruling dictator Anastasio Somoza finally achieved victory in July 1979. The Sandinistas got their name from the revolutionary Augusto Sandino. He was referred to as a bandit by the U.S. government. His exploits made him a hero throughout much of Latin America where he became a symbol of resistance to United States dominations. Assassinated by the National Guard in 1934, we're calling Nicaragua here, and uh, the phone, I don't know. (laughs) We will see. Anyway, so the uh, Sandino was assassinated in 1934, and after he had been assassinated, uh, the legacy continued with the Sandinista National Liberation Front, which finally overthrew the the Somoza government in 1979. The exceedingly popular Sandinista government was led way back then by revolutionary Daniel Ortega, who installed a program of nationalization, land reform, wealth distribution, and literacy programs. The Sandinistas lost power in 1990, but Daniel Ortega was reelected in 2006 and has served as president since then. Fast forward to 2018, and the world is wondering, what happened? On April 19, 2018, Allegedly spontaneous protests broke out in five principal cities across Nicaragua. The mainstream media is presenting a consistent picture that the government is doing the killing. 
pardon me if I remain skeptical of this narrative. Many people have asked me, what is going on really in Nicaragua? Well, our guest today is Ben Savio. Uh, to test the phone system, I called him the day before and he told me 11 people had been kidnapped from his town the night before. Uh, so I appreciate his uh, bravery. Uh, ben Savio, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's my pleasure, Bert. Thanks for having me. Ben Savio is Professor of Development Studies at the National Agrarian University and has been a resident of Nicaragua since 2012. Of course, the news about Nicaragua has not exactly been front and center in these currently United States. <laughs> but so far, it does seem that the government is being blamed for the violence. Yet, the Sandinista has been unquestionably the most popular government in the history of the nation. The president, Daniel Ortega, was elected in 2006 with about 70 percent of the vote. Uh, and that was less. Uh, well, actually, he was reelected with 70 percent of the vote less than a year ago. My error. Being a leftist government, there are always those who would take it down <clears throat> through legitimate or illegitimate means. The picture we've been presented, though murky, is that there were nonviolent protests about cuts to Social Security austerity measures, and that the police have been attacking and killing people who have been the government's, had been the government's staunchest defenders. You're there, Ben. Please tell us the genesis of what's going on. What happened in mid-April? What lit the spark? <laughs> Thanks. for It's a great question. So first, I think I'd like to give you just a tiny bit of backdrop. The, the political right in Nicaragua, the opposition to the Sandinista has been in disarray for a number of years. They've been in a real state of collapse. None of the right-wing opposition parties hold more than 5% support. And they're divided into about five different parties that uh, have not been able to come together with one unified platform. Uh, so given this context, obviously Daniel Ortega has been the most successful politician in, in, in Nicaragua in recent history, and also the most popular politician, and just as... Uh, recently, as last year, he was polling over 80% support, which is, of course, meteoric. No, and that's that's uh, that's th those are polling uh, organizations that are even U.S. and and Costa Rican uh, polling organizations. Wow. So what happened in April is that the INS, which is Nicaragua's Institute of Social Security, was entering into a fiscal crisis. It was uh, spending around 80 million dollars more each year than it was bringing in. And the reason for that has to do with the way that uh, social, social Security pension funds and health care have been extended to greater parts of the population in Nicaragua. Uh, also, it has to do with a couple of bad investments that Eames made in 2013, yeah. including a, uh, a factory to produce vaccines, which was not a successful investment. So this context, there's a, there's a, a negotiation around how to make the Eames uh, a solvent, uh, economically strong institution again. And the way that dialogue has worked here during the last 11 years of Daniel Ortega's administration is it's a three-part dialogue. There's private sector, labor unions, and the government. So in the case of Social Security, the private sector had adopted the IMF line. The, the mm -hmm. International Monetary Fund had delivered a set of recommendations to Nicaragua saying that Nicaragua should uh, raise the retirement age from 60 to 65, and it should 
change the number of weeks that workers have to pay into the retirement system in order to receive a pension from 600 weeks to 1,300 weeks. So more than double the amount of weeks that people would have to pay into the system in order to receive a pension. The IMF also recommended uh, getting rid of a partial pension that exists for people who were affected by the Civil War here in the 1980s. So with that set of recommendations, the private sector enthusiastically backed those recommendations. And the Nicaraguan government had a different proposal. Uh, Their proposal was to uh, raise slightly the percentage of of one's paycheck that workers would pay by 0.75%. You hardly feel it, right? Right. Uh, For employers, it would be higher. It would be 3.5% more that employers would have to pay. And the government, which previously uh, had only paid 0.25%, would now pay 1%. So there were slight increases for all three of the parts. And also 5% of what pensioners receive as a cash uh, income would go directly into their health care fund because pensioners were not receiving the same quality of, of health care as people who are insured through their employment. So it's a, it's a complex proposal, but that was the proposal that the government put forward. Uh, it's it's an anti-austerity measure. Right. And the private sector walked away from the negotiations and, and called for protest. Uh-huh. That's so her- that, was, yeah. that was April 16th and 17th, right? And April 18th, there is a protest um, in, a, in a part of the, the highway between Managua and Masaya, two mm-hmm. principal cities in Nicaragua. But the protest is not really, a, it's not elders, who you might, not the people you might expect to be protesting a, a pension Social cut. Social Security, because right. Presented as a pension cut as an austerity measure when in reality it was, uh, it was an anti-austerity measure. But those who showed up to protest were students. They were young people. That's so very they interesting. Protest. Yeah, go ahead. No, I would saying that's interesting since you're right. It was, uh, der- you know, the, if it was as it's being pictured, uh, a protest about cuts to Social Security, you would expect uh, people my age to be out there. But it was young yeah, people. Sure. So go ahead. Right. Young people and mostly young people. Universities, so middle-class young people. Now, there's a, as I said, there's, there's a very, very small opposition here in Nicaragua, which has been very frustrated over the years, yeah. uh, because in, in elections it's performed very poorly. So, what we have here is a uh, a Sandinista party, which is very successful, popular. But what it did was send out a counter-protest to this original protesting. So we have two groups, one uh. protesting in against the Social Security reforms and the other protesting in favor of the Social Security reforms. And those two groups uh, had a standoff. They, they connected with one another. They had a standoff and there was some fistfights. There were also opposition media at this event and uh, one opposition media had his uh, camera stolen by a Sandinista youth so this confrontation was uh, spun <laughs> into the greatest case of repression that had ever existed, right? It is, if you look at it hour by hour, first you have uh, each of the opposition media talking about how upset they are. One uh, decides to quit his job because he's never been so offended by, by the fact that he 
had to deal with a counter-protest, these things. By 7 p.m., the U.S. Embassy is making a statement. The private sector has all made a statement. And during the night, so we're talking about 8 p.m. here, the Facebook, uh, which is the primary source of news for people under 40 in Nicaragua, had presented a, a student protester had been killed by police. So that news was not true. Oops. I lost it's you. moves on Facebook. Oh, the next day, there were protests across the country. And the protest was no longer about... I'm, I'm losing you from time to time, Ben. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Right. So the next day, April 19th, there were protests across the country, no longer about Social Security, but rather uh, against government repression. Ah. Wow. Interesting. It, it, it sounds like... Uh, there were some stage managers behind the scene, I can't help but think. This was an extraordinary piece of management. I was watching the whole thing go down, right, uh, on television uh, and also using Facebook. And the truth is that there were uh, four days in which my Facebook feed was drowned entirely by very slick advertisements calling on young people to do armed insurrection. Images of, of a young man staring into the eyes of a anti-riot police officer. Images of the flag with blood on it. Images of Sandino himself, who's a almost mythical, sure. uh, very important political figure here. Oh, yeah. An image of Sandino walking around with the severed heads of Daniel Ortega and his wife, Rosario Murillo. Oh, so there is an extraordinary uh, campaign uh, to get young people to protest in those days. And uh, April 19th, there were three deaths. There was a police officer who was killed, and there were two young people who were killed. Uh, how they were killed is still in the air. It's not clear how each death took place. There are certainly images that would suggest that police officers were shooting live rounds, but it's also not clear whether they were given orders to shoot to kill or not. There are certainly deaths that appear as though they were carried out by snipers. Uh, but again, it, it's very unlikely that a government that has nothing to gain and everything to lose would look to increase a death toll over protests, which it's really trying to prevent. There's, a, there's some real questions about the, the state of the violence, but at the end of that week, Daniel Ortega rescinded the change to Social Security, Right. He canceled that change, and he called for a national dialogue. The opposition uh, has to be included in that national dialogue because, as I said in the past, it was just private sector, labor unions, and the government. The opposition has to be included. They were given the chance to be included. They asked to be able to talk about other issues, uh, such as the democratization of the country, and the government said, okay, sure. And they asked to have the... Inter-American Commission on Human Rights come into the country to hmm. uh, look at the violence, and the government said okay. Hmm. Uh, they also asked for the Catholic Church to mediate the violence, and the government also asked for the Catholic Church to mediate the dialogue. I'm sorry, to, uh, for the, the Catholic hierarchy in, in Nicaragua to mediate the national dialogue. Sure. So that's what happened. Wow. This was all now over two months ago. Yeah, and... Uh, the Catholic, Catholic Church is a powerful, uh, long-standing institution throughout Central America, 
and those advertisements that you were telling us about, that they couldn't have been uh, just uh, slapped together real quickly. It sounds like there was some, uh, it took some production skills. Uh, that's fascinating, of Sandino holding a couple of severed heads of, uh, of uh, Daniela Ortega and his wife, whose name I forget, actually her first name, but uh, oh, Rosario. Yeah, very interesting campaign. It was very well Ooh. done. In fact, what's wow. interesting, Bert, is that the, this campaign, really the first, probably the first 40 days of it were very, very, very well planned, military campaign. Mm. And the, this movement, which emerged overnight out of no local contradiction, there was no process that led to uh, a lot of people being anti-government. It really happened overnight. Uh, it, it took on several symbols of Sandinista struggle, which was very interesting. So their, their slogan is, que rinde tu madre, which basically translates into, tell your mom to give up. And that's a famous slogan from a, a Nicaraguan poet who was a very young man who was a martyr of the, the war against Somoza. Leonel Rugama, who was trapped by the National Guard, and they told him, give up. And he said, go tell your mom to give up. Right? And he was killed five minutes later. But they took that slogan, and they've turned it against the Sandinista Front. They also called their movement the movement of April 19th, because, of course, July 19th is the, the day of the triumph of the Sandinista Revolution. So by taking the numbers, by taking the slogans, by trying to use the songs, they've tried to create a uh, sort of a, a, a movement that's invincible right. and uh, compare in all, in all ways that they can Daniel Ortega with uh, Anastasio Somoza oh, as my. being the same thing. Whoa, fascinating stuff. It's, I mean, there's always uh, interesting news behind the headlines and uh, sort of some usual players here. There's the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which... Uh, People, developing countries often depend on them, and they uh, they often uh, require severe austerity. And here, the government, as you're telling it, uh, they they went against the severe austerity and tried something's kind of in between. But yet, there are players apparently. I mean, there's a lot of interests that have want to bring down the Sandinista government for a long, long time. I mean, it was the whole <laughs> Contra thing. Uh, back when I was in Nicaragua in 1986, uh, the Contras were uh, were around, and uh, they were, of course, uh, so-called freedom fighters fighting at the behest of, of Ronald Reagan and uh, I think perhaps even Oliver North. I don't know, but you know there have been interests in overthrowing the government. And I have heard, uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. And we are talking with Ben Savio somewhere in Nicaragua. He did not want to say where. Things are a little bit tense there, to put it mildly. Uh, And we're talking about what's really going on in Nicaragua. I've heard from people on the left who have traditionally supported uh, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas that he has been shifting toward a more pro-business approach. And I've even heard from people about uh, there was a, a proposal to build a canal to compete with the Panama Canal through uh, the big lake in the center of Nicaragua, which many people had been concerned about environmentally and uprooting farms and things like that. And I wonder, has he shifted? People have asked, has Ortega sold out? Might this have alienated his leftist base and led to the uprisings? What do you 
what are your thoughts about that? I think there's a couple of things to consider there. First off, the private sector in Nicaragua, similarly to the Catholic Church, was very much involved in the Contra War. So with Daniel Ortega returning to power in 2007, uh, he had sort of a plan to give political attention to traditional enemy sectors, right, including the Catholic Church, including the, the traditional oligarchy, in which he offered them sort of business opportunities in exchange for being a soft opposition rather than a hard opposition. Ah. So the Catholic Church has been given universities to run. They've, they have all kinds of money coming in because they're, they're doing business. Also, the traditional Contra uh, fighters themselves, who were mostly from uh, working class and peasant backgrounds, have been given uh, cooperatives to run the taxis in Managua. They've been given all sorts of cooperative business opportunities. And with the private sector, uh, the private sector has been involved in an ongoing dialogue with the government. We have to remember the weakness, the position of weakness that the Latin American left uh, has been in, and particularly uh, in, in Central America, where the neoliberal program not only erased social securities and protections and uh, privatized education and, and privatized health care, but also really uh, de-ideologized society. So you have a lot of people who are not prepared ideologically to get into a long-pitched battle with the, the ruling class. So Daniel Ortega, I think, out of a, a lot of experience, developed an approach which would be to, to have conversations with the private sector to give them as many business opportunities as possible, to create a business-friendly environment overall, but to have lots of redistributive programs. So when he entered into office in 2007, he relaunched a literacy program. Mm. Uh, the first law that he signed into the uh, first act that he signed into law was to deprivatize public education, which had been privatized through an autonomy law in the 1990s. So he's really gone through and started to deprivatize uh, several sectors of society, has made sure that water is a right and not a private property. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a model that's been based on economic growth. And so Nicaragua has grown more in the last 11 years than any other uh, period of time in its history. Mm. And that economic growth has, of course, included lots of jobs, which is the hot-button issue here in Nicaragua as elsewhere. Yes, and uh, that's led to his this this level of uh, popular support. But certainly, there's a there's a leftist critique there. But I don't think it's the same leftist critique as as what's being said by those who would really install a neoliberal system in Nicaragua if they're able to to knock out the government. And there's something called pragmatism too. You know, if shoring up your base is important to do and doing what's necessary for the good of the economy. And you're reminding me, when I was in Nicaragua in 1986, uh, the streets in Managua were a wreck. The downtown was a wreck from an earthquake that had happened in 1972. And the, U yeah. the, the world uh, aid that came in to rebuild it was pocketed by the dictator, Somoza. He didn't do anything. They didn't fix it. They had the construction company, so they just pocketed the money. It didn't fix anything. So it was a really poor place before that. And, and the Somoza... Absolutely. 
It's like if you go in the United States and you start to realize that most of the infrastructure was built during the New Deal. Yes. That's sort of how it is now here in Nicaragua. Most of the infrastructure was built in the last 11 years. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I still like the New Deal, and the New Deal has its uh, enemies, that's for sure. They're trying to take it down. They have been ever since its success. Now, as I Absolutely. said, the, the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, had in 2016 called uh, I- economic activity and growth in Nicaragua. They said it was buoyant. It was a strong economy. Yet t- about 27% of the population still lives in, par- in poverty, down about from about 40% in 2006. And in, even more higher than that in the rural areas, what, what kind of economic success is this, whereas 27% still in poverty? <laughs> a good question. That's the kind of that's the sort of critique that I think is very valid. You know, there's been redistributive programs, but they're not redistributive programs that incite a a power struggle, a, a class war. They're redistributive programs that are meant to generalize access to education, that are meant to universalize access to healthcare, that are meant to decrease uh, uh, mother mortality. At birth and infant mortality. Oh yeah, that was very um, high. So, in terms of nutrition, Nicaragua's made great strides. Imagine that it, it, Nicaragua produces ninety percent of its own food, which in wow. Central America is unheard of. Jeez. There's no country that comes close to that. Wow. So, the model has really been about promoting small-scale producers and the popular economy. Now, those small-scale producers, most of them accessed land through the land reform of the 1980s, but their land wasn't legalized. So what this administration has done is to legalize those titles for over 200,000 small farmers, and it's also given collective land title to indigenous nations, which uh, comprises one-fourth of the total land territory of the country, is now under title as indigenous territory. Huh. So land reform is working, and there are those interests that strongly oppose land reform. Uh, right, the landed oligarchy, yeah, really, who's behind this this whole coup attempt. They're working with the Catholic Church, ah. and they're they're just uh, they think this is their great chance to to push out Daniel Ortega. I don't know if they understood the forces that they would unleash, you know, because it's the, also the only country in Central America that successfully kept out drug cartels. Ah. And in the last eighty days, we've had all sorts of violence, which you know, really high caliber automatic weapons that suggests that drug cartels are moving in with this anarchy in the streets. Well, that's that's really interesting because, yeah, we, we get this image, which is, you know, no doubt created, uh, that the drug cartels are, are really powerful, and they have been in other countries. But as you say, and not just you, but it's a fact that the drug cartels have not uh, really had much power in Nicaragua. But it seems like from what you're saying, since the uh, April 19th uh, dust-up, shall we say, the uh, organized crime has indeed infiltrated Nicaragua with some of those uh, those big guns. I mean, they don't come from nowhere. That's <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. Bert, can I take a moment and just oh, describe yes. how the violence works here? Yes, please. So, uh, after the this, like you say, the first dust-up of where there really were protests across the country. Sure. And those protests... Uh, provoked the, the presence of anti-riot police, and then somehow there started being deaths that the anti-riot police were obviously blamed for in the media, but some of the deaths have been caused by protesters. Some of the people who were killed were counter-protesters, so it's not quite clear 
what happened in those first dust-ups. But since then, what the opposition did is they've, they've called themselves autoconvocados, the self-convoked people of Nicaragua, wearing masks, have been knocking down uh, symbols of Sandinista power and, and burning down buildings that are symbols of Sandinista history. So they've destroyed historical monuments, they've burned down clinics and libraries, they've destroyed murals, uh, they've knocked down what are called the Tree of Life statues in Managua, which are a symbol of sort of a post-war peace. Um, they have also kidnapped Sandinistas across the country and uh, publicly tortured many of them, lynched many of them. They paint them in blue and white. Uh, they've painted town, entire towns in blue and white. It's sort of this color revolution idea like we've seen in, in Eastern Europe. But they've also created roadblocks across the entire country. Now, these roadblocks are generally made of, of adoquines, which are uh, paving stones in the streets. They, they pull up the, the, the street paving stones, which this government has put in, right, because they were dirt roads before then. And they make these, uh, these barricades, and then they don't let cars pass. And if people want to pass through, sometimes they get robbed. Sometimes they're asked for a, a toll, you know, a pretty expensive amount of money uh, to pass through them. And so people have been stuck where they are. Now, this has led to the loss of over 100,000 jobs just since this violence began. Yeah. But also the people who are running these roadblocks are not students. These are paid, uh, armed men who are gaining a salary through this. Now, the question is, who's paying their salary, and yeah. why do they have weapons, right? And, uh, you know, in some cases, it's it's landed oligarchy, it's cattle interests. In other cases, it's uh, ex-contra that are still interested in fighting the fight against Daniel Ortega. In other cases, it's drug cartels. But this violence, uh, it's, it's, you know, I haven't been able to leave the town I'm in in uh, 80 days. <laughs> haven't been able to leave because there's an armed barricade on both sides of the, of the city. Wow, that certainly does affect the economy. And it seems like there's a lot of thought put into this thing. And I wonder if it's a, a 21st century version of the Contra War, you know, just uh, getting smarter, but trying to achieve uh, the same thing, get the Sandinistas out. They have been uh, a thorn in the side of oligarchs around the world, shall we say. And, I, I, you know, there have been opposition parties how how have they done in recent times and tell us also about one opposition party calling itself the sandinista renovation movement sure great so there's a in 1990 the the sandinista front lost an election to what was called uno the united opposition which was uh in that case led by violeta zamora yes. zamora is the last name of the media oligarchs, the people who control La Prensa and Confidencial. So that oligarchy came into power uh, in 1990, right? The, the oligarchy had opposed Somoza and many of the, the highest level Sandinistas in the 1980s were actually children of the oligarchy, like Ernesto Cardenal, mm. uh, like uh, Carlos Fernando Chamorro. These were people who were high up in the, in the Sandinista government, but they were actually the children of the oligarchy. In 1990, the Sandinista Front loses the elections, and these children of the oligarchy all leave the party because they were heads of ministries, right? They don't want to be stuck in an opposition party. <laughs> so what they did is they left, and many of them formed NGOs and are currently the heads of, of all of the really important NGOs in the country. And 
many of them formed their own party. And this party uh, dropped the, the red and black flag and created an orange flag. And they called themselves this, the, the movement to renovate Sinanismo, the Sinanism renovation movement. Hmm. And in that moment, basically what they did is they renounced socialism. They blamed all of the heirs of the 1980s on Daniel Ortega. And they've sort of had a, a social democrat perspective, but they've fared very, very poorly in elections. They they haven't been able to pass the mark of two percent support mm. in the elections. Uh, but they do control uh, the NGO sector. They've also because of sort of these high level uh, ex Sandinistas, they've been able to retain very good contacts outside of Nicaragua. So when Amy Goodman or um, any of the, the U.S. news media, even on the left, decides to interview somebody from Nicaragua or interview, you know, they always have these ex on who really in Nicaragua have absolutely no popular support because they've lost all credibility. They weren't there in the struggles to defend the gains of the revolution during the 1990s when the, the Nicaraguan people resisted the IMF and resisted the neoliberal model. They weren't there. And they they haven't been there in the last ten years. They've you know some of them live in L.A., some of them live in Miami, others live in fancy houses in Nicaragua, but they really haven't been a political factor. But they do control the NGO sector, and that NGO sector, since 2007, when Daniel Ortega returned to office, has become extremely close with the far right of the United States Congress. So, for example, this party, the MRS, visited. Uh, Ileana Rose Lennington in her office in, in Washington, D.C. This is the, the Cuban-American uh, mafia representative. Uh, also, uh, Marco Rubio, who has sort of taken over the um, the efforts of the International Republican Institute since John McCain has been sidelined with cancer. And also Ted Cruz. So we have this, tr- this trio of the, the farthest right that the right can get in the United States Congress that has been very actively uh, supporting uh, an NGO sector in Nicaragua through the funds of the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, the International Republican Institute, and the International Democratic Institute to uh, form a media narrative against Daniel Ortega and the Sandinista government, and also to train upwards of 2,000 young people in social media techniques. Wow. They know what they're doing. And if you just <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive Around the World, wherever we can. We're talking with Ben Savio somewhere in Nicaragua, which is a beautiful country, uh, professor of development studies at the National Agrarian University. And Ben Savio has uh, lived in Nicaragua since 2012. And, uh, you know, th- th- there's this democracy promotion that the na- non-governmental organizations, the NGOs, do. Is there evidence that the actual U.S. government has p- had poured money into the NGOs? Or is it more from the private, uh, more right-wing interests? What do we know about that? Yeah, I really do encourage everyone who's listening, uh, hopefully after the show ends, to go on uh, to the the NED website. So NED, again, for everyone, is uh, National Endowment for Democracy. If you look them up and go to their website, you know, it's very interesting because everything's published there. And the founder of NED said that 
20 years ago, most of what we do was done by the CIA. So it's really the above-ground yeah. version of, of U.S. intelligence efforts. Oh and what they do basically is they, yeah, they, they fund uh, the Nicaragua NGO sector. They fund, I think, 20 or 30 different organizations in Nicaragua. Three of them are anonymous, so they don't, we don't get to know what organization was funded. But uh, when you start to look at what they do, yeah, it's, it's to foster civil society, court of the nation. It's to uh, use social media to struggle for democracy. It's to train a group of women uh, interested in democracy. And essentially what that means is that they've created a uh, feminist movement here in Nicaragua that's uh, mostly interested in getting the Sandinista front out of power. They've created a false peasant movement here. You know, there's real feminist movements here. There's real peasant movements here. But in this case, they've created their own that are well-funded, have a strong media arm, and their real purpose is to get the Sandinista Front out of power. They're, I mean, really, you look at the word mercenary, and what does it mean? It means that you take money from a foreign government to to fight uh, a... Yeah, it's the, uh, the Institute of Strategic Studies and Public Policy, which is run by uh, the, the director there is Felix Maradiaga. So Felix Maradiaga was born in Nicaragua from uh, Matagalpa. He studied in the United States, uh, was given scholarships to, to study public policy in Harvard and in Yale, has become an Aspen uh, foundation uh, fellow, right? Aspen mm-hmm. Global Leadership uh, Network. He's an Aspen fellow. He's uh, been given a, an award, the, the Gus Hart Award by the Chicago Social Sciences Commission. That award was previously given to uh, Leoni Sanchez, who's the Cuban dissident blogger, and also to um, Capriles. The, uh, the the Venezuelan ex-presidential candidate running against Hugo Chavez, who was also the guy who tried to burn down the Cuban embassy during the night, during the 2002 coup attempt in Venezuela. So we're talking about extreme uh, right-wing uh, destabilizers, right? And this guy's one of them. He runs this this uh, this organization, right, which has a very nice office has been employing young people all across Nicaragua, has created a network of people across Nicaragua. And uh, since the protest movement began in in April, he installed himself in one of the universities, which was uh, taken by a group of people that involves some students and also some people who are not students. And uh, they discovered there was a guy named Viper within that university. That's Upoli, the, the Polytechnic University in Managua. There was a guy named Viper, his, his code name is Viper, he's an organized crime uh, boss, who was running all sorts of uh, destabilization uh, violence from the Upoli campus across Nicaragua, mostly in Managua, but these, this included carjackings, uh, arsons, uh, and murders. In fact, there was a U.S. citizen who was killed in, in, uh, in a carjacking uh, in, the, in, the, in April and in May. So Viper was taken into custody, and when they interrogate him, he said, oh, yeah, my boss is Felix Maradiaga. So we have a guy who's an Aspen fellow who's got a master's degree from Harvard who has been organizing 
destabilizing violence in Nicaragua for two months. Of course, he was in Washington, D.C. when the, when the national police uh, accused him of, of running an organized crime network. He, accused, uh, he, he denied the charges, of course, and the U.S. State Department echoed his denial. Of course. Uh, but it's a very interesting case, right? And what's astonishing, Bert, is that he's not the only Aspen fellow who's involved in this coup attempt. There's also the, the head here of Cargill, the grain corporate giant uh-huh. from the United States, Cargill, is a woman named Maria Nelly Rivas. She's also U.S. educated. She's also an Aspen fellow, and she's one of the negotiators in the National Dialogue. Wow. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I don't know why so many powerful interests have been so against Nicaragua succeeding. I guess they don't want them to be a model for any other country. I mean, uh, Jimmy exactly Carter. Exactly right. Jimmy Carter let it happen. He was one of the very few people who uh, did not interfere, uh, even though it was a leftist government that took over. And I wonder. I mean, there's been a lot of changes in in the other Central American countries. El Salvador used to be. I mean, there was a terrible U.S. war there, and uh, right wing death squads and dictatorship there. I understand, I may be wrong, the FMLN uh, has come to some degree of power there. How is, uh, how is this trouble in Nicaragua playing these days with the Central American neighbors? There's Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, other countries. How is it playing there? Have they uh, said anything? I understand uh, El Salvador's ambassador to Nicaragua, Carlos Asensio, uh, did blame the opposition gangs for the roadblocks. Tell us about the, uh, wh- what's your sense from the other Central American nations and governments? Yeah, sure. So Nicaragua is, is you know, C- Central America is an a isthmus. So the countries are, are, they all have borders, north-south borders with one another, right? And the truckers who have been in Nicaragua uh, at any time, basically since May to the present, have been stuck here. Some have been stuck for three days. Some have been stuck for a week. But there's a group of truckers who have been stuck for almost two months. You know, they haven't been able to access food. They haven't been able to uh, take baths. And they've been stuck between roadblocks. And, you know, it's really a violation of their human rights because they're, they're workers and they've been stuck away from their families in a dangerous situation for months now. So the Salvadoran government called on... Uh, the Nicaraguan government to you know get, sort of give their support to the Nicaraguan government to help try to clear these roadblocks. Of course, the roadblocks are attended to by the Catholic Church here, which makes things very difficult. It's not like the United States, where if there's a criminal hiding in the Catholic Church in the United States, the police just goes in and finds them. Uh, here, it's almost like a sovereign space. The police don't mess with the church, and so the church is really trying to protect these roadblocks, and the roadblocks in this case. Uh, have had about 150 Salvadoran and uh, other Central American countries, Guatemalan uh, truckers, who have been stuck without access to food or, or ways to take baths for, I think it's uh, about 50 days. So that's that's sort of the most recent uh, item there. But in in general terms, you know, the, the issue in Latin America really has to do with Chavez in Venezuela. Uh-huh. When Chavez was elected... You know, Venezuela is the Saudi Arabia of of Latin America. It's got oil. His proposal was, let's unite, let's make a a country that's 
greater than these borders that were put into place by, by colonialism. And let's share petroleum. So with the petroleum of Venezuela, many Latin American countries were able to develop uh, their economies. And in the case of Central America, the strongest influence was felt in Nicaragua, in El Salvador, and in Honduras. So Honduras has always had uh, right-wing governments. It's always been a bastion oh, yeah. of U.S. support. Oh, yeah. But in 2008, the Honduran president, Miguel Zelaya, Mm. said, hey, let's uh, let's join ALBA. Let's join the, the Venezuelan-led alliance for for uh, our Americas, the Boliv- Bolivarian Alliance for our Americas. Mm. And they joined, and, and they were able to do some good things, but the next year there was a military coup. Yeah. Uh, so- since then, of course, Honduras has become the most dangerous country in the world, and the United States has built two new military bases in Honduras near mm. the Nicaraguan border. In the case of El Salvador, the FMLN government, I believe they first won in uh, 2000. I don't remember. And, I think yeah. is when they first won. They've run. They, they've won again, but they only have the presidency. The uh, Congress is led by, led by Arena, which is the oh, you know terrible. the most important right wing party in in Central America, yes. which of course was founded by the by the assassins of uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero. Mm-hmm. So that party, you know, really prevents uh, Arena, for, uh, prevents the FMLN from being able to do what they'd oh, like. And goodness. of course, the Maras in El Salvador have a very right-wing perspective. They've they've done general strikes and uh, prevented business from running in order to get what they want out of the government. It's a complex situation in general in Central America. And Nicaragua has been sort of the exception to that rule because we don't have Mara here. Wow. Uh, so in that context, you know, El Salvador has done some interesting things. They've outlawed gold mining in order to protect water. Wow. They're trying to prevent the privatization of water. And uh, Nicaragua is a bad example in the region because Nicaragua supports Palestine. Nicaragua uh, supports Puerto Rican independence. Nicaragua supports uh, the the rights of Venezuela. And mm. you know, that's a, it's a very it's a challenge to the U.S. interests. Yeah, it certainly is. The U.S. Uh, <laughs> thinks it can control that area and has for a very, very long time, long history of the U.S. Uh, uh, intervening in elections, shall we say. Uh, and, you know, we here in the U.S. Uh, hear a lot about an alleged migrant crisis. I do think uh, the color of the migrants is a significant factor, quite frankly. I don't think it's so much of a Immigrant crisis is a racist crisis. But anyway, most of the immigrants are refugees from Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, but not from Nicaragua. Why do you think that is? Yeah, not until now. <laughs> ah, true. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's when you have a country that's the least violent country in the region, and people think that they have a chance to make it as a small business owner because they have you know, a ministry that attends to them. They have access to uh, good credit. They have a healthcare system that is taking care of them. They have access to free education through the university level. You know, maybe it's worth sticking together as a family and seeing what you can do. And that's basically been the logic here in Nicaragua. It's been uh, very little migration since the Sandinista Front came back into power. And I think it's you're right to point that out. You know, it's one of the most important factors, one of the most important indicators yeah. that the model here was working. Of course, since April, and especially in the last two months where the violence has become 
just so generalized and so much hatred involved. Uh, a lot of people are trying to get out. So at the, the, the U.S. Embassy, the Costa Rican Embassy, people are crossing the, the borders like crazy trying to get out of Nicaragua. But, of course, it's hard to travel because of the roadblock. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, you know, there's a real potential for a political solution here. Yeah. There's a real potential to return to peace. But the long-term security questions and the long-term uh, issues of immigration are really going to be bad. Those, those are not going to be recoverable in the next decade, unfortunately. Hmm. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with Ben Savio, professor of development studies at the National Agrarian University in Nicaragua somewhere. Uh, won't say where he is. Understandable. Things are a bit rough there, these, these paid roadblocks. And again, from some of the criticism of the government is one is that, well, instead of encouraging a new generation of Sandinista leaders, Ortega has instead centralized power in himself and his wife, Rosario. What's your, is, that, is that true, do you think? And might that be contributing to the problem? Yeah, I think it's certainly true. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's definitely been in part of the, the opposition uh, narrative. But, you know, the Sandinista Front's a very mature organization. I don't think that it's, it's you know, it gets reduced in the mainstream media as though the Sandinista Front were only Daniel and Ortega and his wife. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who have lived through at least three or four distinct historical periods. If you look at the French Revolution and everything that happened in France over 150 years, you know, all that happened here in Nicaragua over the space of 25, 30 years. So there's people who have lived through the whole thing. And the Sandinista Front is hundreds of thousands of people who have an enormous political experience. The fact that Daniel Ortega named his wife as vice presidential candidate in 2016 was certainly frowned upon by many people, um, but it made some sense in the, in the sense that she really has been uh, the president in functions of the ministries of the government for, you know, the last eight years or so. She, her official position was she was head of communications. But really, she was running many of the ministries. That's, you know, it does say a lot, right? It yeah. tells us a lot about how they work. Uh, but I don't think that it's something that we can say the Sandinista Front didn't exist or that there was a no plan for a historical renewal. Sure, a lot of people would have enjoyed seeing a very young vice presidential candidate in 2016 because Daniel Ortega is 72 years old. Uh, certainly... This crisis leads the Sandinista Front to first, you know, defeat the coup attempt, but then undergo a real process uh-huh. of uh, self-discovery again to eliminate many of the, the people who have contributed to this crisis, either by not working transparently, uh, by, you know, being corrupt, because in many ways the Sandinista Front wasn't getting rid of corrupt people. It was sort of leaving them where they are. Um, and so there's a whole process of renewal that I think this crisis actually contributes to. I think that they really thought that they were going to bury the Sandinista Front for once and for all, that all the attacks have been against the historical memory, all the attacks have been against the identity of, of being a Sandinista. There's been, like I say, hundreds of not just regular Sandinistas, but people from historic families that are really respected, who have been tortured, others who have been shot, others who have had their bodies burned. It's a really horrific hate 
what's happening here is a hate crimes against mm. Sandinistas. Mm. So, it's, so I think the Sandinista Front will recover, and it will find itself again. And obviously it has to prepare for the period, of the post-Daniel Ortega period. And, and I think that's important. And, and really the, the people who have developed this coup plan may have done you know the, the biggest mistake in the history of the right wing of Nicaragua, which is to think that they could disappear the Sandinista Front, and actually what they'll do is prepare it for the next period of struggle. Wow, interesting. I hope that happens with the uh, whatever to the left of the right there is in the United States. There's not really a left in the U.S., but, you know, I mean, uh, Trump is just so fascistic and dictatorial and blatantly racist. Hopefully, uh, you know, over a period of time, it can, it can make us stronger. We can learn from that. And just, just one last thing. A few days ago, it was reported the Trump administration has imposed sanctions on Nicaragua. What a surprise. They are imposed under the Global Magnitsky Act, the State Department directly blames the government for the violence. But I found it interesting in the same New York Times article, these words from the reporter, quote, the government has denied any role in the killings, arguing instead that opponents are mounting a coup against an elected government and that vandals and gangs are behind the violence. It sounds like uh, the New York Times may have gotten it right. And what about this uh, uh, imposing sanctions on Nicaragua? How, uh, any knowledge of that or sense of how that'll play out? Yeah, I mean, the idea is to intimidate, right? It's, the sanctions so far are against, um, the first sanctions were against the, the head of the National Electoral Council, who's not even a Sandinista. He's really, he's, this is interesting, he's the Ill- illegitimate son <laughs> of the, the cardinal of the Catholic Church who, who was in charge of the first peace negotiations between the Contra and the Sandinistas in the 1980s. So he was a... He was a concession to the church, right, was to give this guy a, a powerful position. He was horribly corrupt, but, you know, he was friendly to the Sandinistas. They hadn't fired him. So there was a, a set of sanctions given against him, and, and he's resigned since then. But the, current, the, the new sanctions are against uh, the head of the national police and the head of the ALBA corporation here. So the ALBA, of course, is the, sure. the Venezuelan-allied uh, Bolivarian alliance. And those funds have been used to build houses. They've been used to uh, mm. provide medical care, et cetera. So those are, that's really, they're, they're trying to intimidate public officials. Why am I not surprised? A uh, <laughs> um, couple things. Any predictions for the road ahead relatively soon? And if there are any organizations you might like to suggest that if people should be so moved, they might want to be supportive of. Yeah, sure. Thanks for the, the, the idea. You know, in general here, there's a real sense that the coup attempt has failed. Um, the violence has certainly become more sort of spectacular, more uh, terrorist-like. Uh, a full family was burned uh, in their homes, and the, the private media all blamed the government. Of course, it doesn't make any sense at all for the government to derail its own uh, negotiation process. There's been more spectacular violence. That kind of violence is likely to continue. But politically, unfortunately, people can die now, and it's not, uh, it doesn't make a big difference politically. The Nicaraguan people are tired of the roadblocks. They're tired of feeling uh, unsafe. So the government is likely to uh, be able to physically remove the roadblocks, even though that's going to include uh, very serious firefights, because we have people on both sides with AK-47, right? the, the police forces, and also the, the, the roadblock. Uh, the people who run the roadblocks. So there's going to be continued violence. 
but the roadblocks will be removed, and the right-wing opposition and the Catholic Church has really lost a lot of credibility over the last two months. So I think that the the coup, the basically the, this coup attempt has failed. There will be elections, whether they're going to be early elections next year or whether there will be elections in 2021. And who knows? The Sandinista Front may surprise uh, its critics and win the election in a landslide. We'll see. They have built, pulled off surprises before. Any uh, non-governmental organizations that uh, you think uh, may be uh, helpful, may be supportive of uh, what's going on there that, that we might like to see? Sure. Uh, let me think. You know, there's there's um, there's certainly the the uh, the peasant movement La Via Campesina, which has put up some strong statements in favor of peace, which people could check out. Um, there's also the you know the university students, which have been very very targeted by opposition violence. It's the uh, National Union of University Students UNEN. If people look them up on, on the internet, U N E N. They have been uh, had some of their leaders uh, killed, others who have been uh, shot and thrown into ditches. They've had many of their buildings burned, some of their historic uh, monuments destroyed, because they're a, a pro-Sandinista student movement. So if people are interested, you know, it might be nice to show them some support. Uh, but more than anything, you know, to... Just keep involved, keep their keep our eyes open, and and be wary of uh, yes. of imperial designs in Nicaragua. The truth shall make you free, Ben Savio. Thank you so much. Hey, stay safe. I'm sure you will. Thank you so much for being with us from uh, Nicaragua. You're very very Take educational. Care, Thank you. This is the uh, Sandinista theme. Luchamos contra el Yankee. 